Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest! Special guest! gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where I, Kalia, a huge book nerd, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Today I am joined by Keith via Zoom, so heads up and apologies for the bad sound quality. I did my best to fix it in post, but this is where we're at. This time around, we will be discussing Ready Player One by Ernest Cline. The book was published in 2011, the movie came out in 2018, where you can find sources, references, and updates about the show. We now have a page on the website with a list of our upcoming book and movie combos, so you can read and watch along ahead of time at home. Speaking of upcoming episodes, we are putting together a community episode and we want to hear from you. If you have, over the course of the last 25 episodes or so, loved one of our hot takes, disagreed vehemently with one of my rants, have a burning question or mini rant of your own, please feel free to either record a voice memo or put your fingers to work and email us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us comments on our Facebook page or our Twitter, both searchable by typing Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar. Lastly, we want to really encourage you to rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to us on, especially iTunes, because that will help other people find us. And as always, we want to thank our patrons for their ongoing support. One dollar a month or five, if you're really generous, helps us keep doing this. And hey, if a monthly commitment isn't your bag, we're currently doing this fun, I hope, thing where you can make a one-time $25 donation and you will get to pick the book and movie combo for us to do. And if you want, guests on a future episode if that's your jam. I really hope we don't live to regret this. I can trust you all to not subject me to something truly horrible, right? Right? Right. One more note about support that goes beyond this podcast. I want to encourage you to support the artists and content creators who are making this pandemic a little bit more bearable. And yes, we are recording during the pandemic. 
I hope you are all finding the time and space for some self-care in whatever way that you need. I know for me it's been hard to do all the normal things. I thought I'd be doing nothing but reading and writing, but it turns out I've been doing nothing but dishes and cooking and homeschooling. So yeah, but I hope that continuing this podcast will help me feel a sense of normalcy and it might help you with a little bit of entertainment. Remember, when you escape into a Netflix show or a good book or even a podcast, these things are all possible because of artists, so support the arts. On that note, let's start the show. So, hi, Keith. Hey, how's it going? It's going pretty good. How are you? I'm good. So, Keith, uh, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? What kind of nerd slash geek are you? Do you play video games? And why are you interested in talking about this book and movie combo with me? I um, I would say I'm mostly a board game nerd, and um, I'm a music nerd. I love music theory, things like that, card games. Uh, tabletop role-playing games. Here, here. Uh, uh, as far as gaming goes, I don't really play on a console so much as uh, computer gaming. Okay. Uh, we just got a Switch, and we really like that. And just for some fun background, the way that we met, I think, was partially due to a podcast and partially due to an MMORPG, which, for those of you who don't know, is a massive multiplayer online role-playing game. Which I'm glad that you explained it in the way that you did, because that's exactly how Ernest Klein writes and creates everything that you find in Ready Player One. Yes. You know, he'll say like, an MMORPG, you know, like a multiplayer massive, <laughs> you know, like, and it's, it's so, it's like, who is this book for? I know we're jumping ahead, but yeah, we met in WoW. We actually met, I, I listened to a Double Meat podcast. Hi, Sasha. Yeah, and you were a guest on the on the show, and so I looked you up on Facebook, and you were on there. So then we ended up playing on WoW a little bit. Yeah, so I remember we would talk on Vent, and we would quest together. You like right. my segue? I segued. That was my segue. I'm gonna segue. I'm gonna do my our book recap now. So <clears throat> I'm going to say a lot of things during my recap, which are references to things that I have actually no knowledge of. So if I if I mispronounce any of these fun names and places and things. I apologize in advance. In the 2040s, the world has been gripped by an energy crisis from the depletion of fossil fuels and the consequences of global warming and overpopulation that's caused widespread social problems and economic stagnation. To escape the decline of their world, people have been turning to Oasis, a virtual reality simulator accessible to players by using visors and technologies such as special gloves. It functions both as a massive multiplayer online role-playing game, or MMORPG, and as a virtual world, with its currency being the most stable in the whole real world. It was created by James Donovan Halliday, founder of Gregarious Simulation Systems, which was formerly Gregarious Games, when he died, had announced in his will to the public that he had left an Easter egg inside the Oasis, and the first person to find it would inherit his entire fortune, ownership of the corporation, as well as full control of the Oasis itself, which is worth trillions. The story follows the adventures of Wade Watts starting about five years after the announcement when he becomes the first to discover one of the three keys which unlock three gates leading to the treasure. Meanwhile, slavery for debts has become legal in the U.S. and its corporations, for example, innovative online industries, use slaves to work in the Oasis. Here we go. God, there's so much plot in this. 
Teenager Wade Watts lives with his aunt in Oklahoma City in the stacks, a poverty-stricken district constructed by trailer homes piled on top of one another. He spends his spare time as a gunter or a hunter, logging into the Oasis and Avatar under the moniker of Parzival, reading Halliday's journal, which is called Anorox Almanac, and researching details of the 1980s pop culture, mainly classic video games and movies that Halliday had loved. One day, he realizes that the first key is located in Ludus, the same virtual world as his own online high school, and discovers a recreation of the Dungeons & Dragons module Tomb of Horrors. He defeats the al Asarak at the video game Joust and is awarded the Copper Key. Parcival appears on the scoreboard, attracting the world's attention. He then meets Artemis, a famous female gunter and blogger who's been trying to get the Copper Key for nearly a month, but was never able to defend the AI. After giving Artemis a tip on how to win the game, Parcival leaves and completes the Copper Gates puzzles by teleporting to planet Middletown, playing through the Dungeons and Dragarth video game and a recreation of Holiday's parents' house, and then role-playing Matthew Broderick's character in the film War Games. Artemis gets her own key and clears the gate shortly afterwards, as does Parcival's best friend, H. Wade's fame enables him to make a living by endorsing virtual products. It also brings him to the attention of Nolan Sorrento, head of operations of Innovative Online Industries, or IOI, a multinational corporation bent on a well-funded effort to find the Easter egg in order to take control of the Oasis and monetize it. When Wade refuses to join IOI, Sorrento attempts to kill him by blowing up the stacks where Wade lives, killing his aunt along with several other people and disguising the explosion as a meth lab accident. But Wade escapes and he moves to Columbus, Ohio, hometown to both GSS and IOI, where he lies low, assuming the pseudonym Bryce Lynch, and living in an anonymous apartment designed for hardcore Oasis users. He considers an alliance with H, Artemis, as well as Dato and Shoto, a duo of Japanese gunters who've also earned the copper key, but instead he and Artemis began a wary friendship, and when he asks her out, Artemis declines! IOI operators called Sixers because of their six-digit avatar name, always beginning with a six, attempt to assassinate Wade and Artemis's avatars on the birthday party of Oasis' co-founder Ogden Morrow. They are stopped by Morrow, who has special privileges and powers within the Oasis. Artemis abandons Wade due to the competition being more personal for her. And five months pass, and neither Wade nor anyone else has found the next token, the Jade Key. When Artemis finally finds the Jade Key, Percival scrambles to planet Arachnade, where he plays a perfect game of Pac-Man, receiving only a quarter as a prize. H, who was the second player to find the Jade Key, provides a hint, leading him to the planet Frobos, where he solves a recreation of the text adventure game Zork, and whistles a two- 1,600 hertz sound through a Captain Crunch bosun whistle. Sorrento, who has tracked Artemis and H using their premium locator artifact, establishes the base there to farm jade keys for the company's avatars. Then he unlocks the second gate and rapidly acquires the crystal key as well. Shoto tells Parcival the Sixers has infiltrated Daito's real-life apartment and has thrown him off his balcony, killing him and passing it off as a Japanese suicide. Parcival unlocks the Jade Gate by entering a privately owned Blade Runner themed building and completes the arcade game Black Tiger as a character from the first person shooter perspective being given a virtual mecha as a prize as well as another clue, a red star and a circle. Using his knowledge of Rush, he acquires the Crystal Key on Planet Sphinx, the Red Star being the symbol of the Solar Federation, the song 2112, and after playing Discovery, the third movement of the song, finds a clue regarding the conditions to unlock the final gates of the Sixers that they had missed. As he messages Artemis, H, and Shoto with his discovery, Sorrento ends their covert attempts to clear the third gate, castle, and Norik in Planet, I'm not even going to try, and places a force field around everything. Wade manipulates his assumed identity to, in order to be arrested and placed an indentured servitude into IOI's tech support department. 
While inside IOI, he uses black market passwords and security exploits to hack into IOI's intranet. He acquires a wealth of information, including footage of Daito's murder. The information also includes the attempt on his own life, as well as plans to force Shoto and Artemis to work for IOI in real life and kill them at the end of the contest. IOI doesn't know who H is because H uses a pseudonym and stays mobile. After leaving a booby trap in the castle and escaping the corporation, Percival shares his information with his friends and publicizes a gathering of avatars to storm the castle. They are interrupted by Ogden Morrow, who offers them a safe haven in his home in Oregon. Wade meets the real-life H in Ogden, but not Artemis or Shoto, because they're already hooked into Ogden's immersion pods. Okay. Although H's avatar is an athletic Caucasian heterosexual male, turns out that H is actually an African-American lesbian named Helen. It's about the same age as Wade, of course. Also, Artemis, who keeps telling Wade over and over that she's not who she is in the game and he wouldn't like her in real life, blah, 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 well, she's in the isolation pod, so he can't see her quite yet. Now it's the day of the battle, our climax. Wade uses his booby trap, a robot carrying a quantum bomb, to bring down the force field in a massive battle between Gunters and Sixers and Seuss. Parcival uses the Mecha Leprechaun accompanied by Artemis's Minerva X, H's Gundam, and Shoto's Raiden to fight against Sorrento's Megalodgodzilla Kaiju through Sh Shoto's avatar is killed, Leprechaun is destroyed during the fight, and Parcival then uses an ace of his sleeve, a device that transforms him into Ultraman. Whew. With this power, he ultimately destroys Sorrento's merch and kills his avatar. Percival and his friends unlock the gate, at which point Sixers use an artifact called the Catalyst to destroy the castle and all avatars in the entire space sector. Percival survives because having that Pac-Man quarter granted him that extra life. As he enters the crystal gate, he announces that if he wins, he will share his fortune with his three friends. With Sorrento and his Sixers on his heels, Percival plays Tempest, role-playing King Arthur and various characters in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and finally retrieves the Easter egg in adventure. His victory grants him control of the Oasis, including the ability to kill his enemies' avatars, resurrect his friends, and a big red button that can shut down the Oasis forever. Sorrento was arrested for the murder of Daito, the victims of the Oklahoma bombing, and for conspiring to kill Wade and the others. Back in Oregon, Wade and Artemis, whose actual real name is Samantha, finally meet in person. She reveals her port wine stain on her face. Oh no, but you know what? She's still pretty hot, so whatever. They rekindle their relationship with a kiss. And there's actually a rather decent final line that I'm going to save for later. The end. So my god. Okay. <clears throat> Ready Player One, the movie. 2018 American science fiction adventure film directed by Steven Spielberg. In 2045, people seek regular escapes from life through a virtual reality entertainment universe called Oasis. It's co-created by James Holiday and Ogden Morrow of Gregarious Games. After Holiday's death, a pre-recorded message left by his avatar announces a game granting ownership of Oasis to the first to find the golden Easter egg with it and is locked behind a gate requiring three keys which players can obtain by accomplishing three challenges. Contest has lowered a number of hunters or egg hunters in the interest of Nolan Sorrento, the CEO of IOI, who seeks to control Oasis in order to insert intrusive online advertising. IOI uses an indentured servants and employees called Sixers to find the egg. Wade Watts is an orphan teenager living in the slums or stacks of Columbus, Ohio with his aunt and her abusive boyfriend. In the Oasis, his avatar, Parzival, is best friends with H, a virtual mechanic who's also like an orc. Parzival later befriends Artemis, a well-known gunter with awesome pink hair who shares a common interest in Holiday's history. They review Holiday's life from the archives, an online library of Holiday's life that comes 
online upon the start of the games with help from a curator. They learn Holiday had several regrets in his life, including his unrequited love for Morrow's wife, Karen, who uses the gamer tag of Kira, and losing Morrow as a friend after forcing him to sign away his part of Gregarious Games. Using this information, they solve how to win the car race across an ever-shifting Manhattan cityscape and acquire the first key. H and two of their other friends, Daito and Sho, soon follow suit with the group becoming known as the High Five and the Oasis Scorbers. Sorrento learns of Parzival's real-life identity through Oasis's mercenary I-Rock, uh, basically a bounty hunter, and attempts to sway Wade into joining IOI, but Wade refused. In retaliation, Sorrento has IOI's head of operations... Finale Lysandor bomb Wade's stack, killing Alice and her boyfriend. Artemis's player, Samantha, rescues Wade, and they commence a search for Kira and the Overlook Hotel from The Shining to get the second key. They are soon found by IOI. Samantha is captured and remanded to one of IOI's loyalty centers in order to work off the debt. Wade is extracted by other high fives, Helen, H, and Toshito, Daito, and Zoe, Sho. The group tracked down Samantha's location at Ayatwai and they remotely help her escape, allowing her to assist them in the Oasis as Artemis. The third challenge requires one to play a Holiday's favorite Atari 2600 game in a castle on planet Doom, which Sorrento has projected with a force field emitted by a magical in-game artifact called the Orb of Box. Parcival recruits other Oasis players to help the rebels attack the IOI forces around the castle. Artemis deactivates the force field, allowing Parcival to reach the console. After a brief fight, Sorrento detonates a bomb called the Catalyst that kills all the avatars in Planet Doom. However, due to having won a coin from a bet with the Archives curator earlier, Parcival gets an extra life, proceeding to play through adventure and finding the Easter egg. He is awarded the last key. He opens a gate and is greeted by Emma, Holiday, basically, and given a contract to sign. However, he recognizes it as the same contract that Morrow signed to turn over his part of the gaming company, so he refuses. Anorak changes form, becomes Holiday for real, and reveals that the contract was the final test to make sure that Parcival would not make the same mistakes that he did. Parcival is given the golden egg and control of Oasis. In the real world, Toronto and Xandar fail to stop Parcival before he wins. After accepting defeat, they are quickly arrested for the bombing. Morrow is revealed to have been the curator, offers his services to Wade, and he gladly accepts. Wade decides to run Oasis with the other high fives, shutting it down twice a week to encourage people to spend more time in the real world. They also block loyalty centers from access accessing the system, forcing the end of IOI's indentured servitude program. Meanwhile, Wade and Samantha start a relationship and move into a luxury apartment. Kiss, kiss. The end. So, <sighs> what did you think of Ready Player One? <laughs> okay, so first off, I came to this book because a lot of people were talking about it in the geek world. So I was interested in reading it. And one of the things I kept hearing was, it's so cool. It's sci-fi. And also, Will Wheaton reads the audiobook, which I thought was an interesting way to promote the book itself. But sure, Will Wheaton's cool. Um, I'm a tricky. <clears throat> so I didn't listen to it, but I, I heard about him reading it. And so I was like, okay, I'll read it. And I actually read it in my book club. My book club is predominantly women. And there's a few gamers in there, a few nerds, but not over much. <laughs> that was interesting. It was received with mixed reviews. Like some people liked it and liked the world building and got really into it. And other people were like, eh, there's some issues. My major issue was the writing itself. Okay, fine. Well, then the movie came out and you're like, well, sometimes the movie's better than the book if the, you know, if it relies so much on visuals and blah blah blah. And this might be that, but I seriously had absolutely no interest in seeing the movie because I kind of felt so meh about the book. 
Um, but it's on the list and we decided to do it. So a couple weeks ago, sat down and watched the movie and here we are. <laughs> I've actually tried to watch this movie about six times. Like I've had to start it over and then I'm like, I'm going to come back to this. I have to watch this because I'm going to be on a podcast about it. And that's the only reason that I finished it. It wasn't because I was, it, it was a, it was an assignment. It was an assignment. <laughs> and the thing is, I messaged you about Ready Player One because I knew you did a podcast. And I was like, you know, I'm kind of like to, I'm kind of curious what she thought. Because a lot of my friends kept talking about this movie. And, oh my God, it's such a great movie because it references things. And so it, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you want to break down like your opinions about the books or if you want to do that first or go to the movie first. I feel like um, just from the outset, this is probably the first time that I can honestly say that the book was better and also that the movie was better. <laughs> they, they were both better than the other in some way. Like, like, sure, I mean, they cleaned up some problems that the author had written the book and, and I feel like some of the things that Ernest Klein wrote about in the book were actually pretty good compared to what I ended up seeing in the movie. I, I don't think one was better than the other. I think they were both terrible and I both I think they were both entertaining. I think the movie was less entertaining than the book. One of the things I found as I read this book was that this book is like it's fan fiction kind of right it's it's a guy's writing about all of his favorite stuff, so it's like fan fiction. So it's like, well, I want to put Sonic in my story. How do I do that? How do I put Sonic the Hedgehog in my story? Well, what if what if I just had a world where all the game characters that I love were all, you know, so he found a way to sort of be able to write like the ultimate fan fiction book without it being, I mean, it's kind of fan fiction-y, but, um, Okay, yeah, and definitely uh, wish fulfillment for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, and and that's that to me is what fan fiction really is: is when you take characters that somebody else has created, and you're like, yeah, but what if they, like these characters got together, or what if they came to my house, or whatever? And so it's yeah. like he's like, hey, what if all the things that I thought were cool in the '80s were like the most cool, and it was. Like, if you didn't know about them, suddenly you're the weirdo, as opposed to the opposite, where in, you know, D&D, let's say in the 80s, if you knew about it, you were the weirdo. And now, yeah. so, okay, but <laughs> the writing of the book is painful. It's painful. I, I don't even know how else to put it. It's not well written. It's, there's laundry lists of things. It's not like... You know, I enjoy cereal, so I had a bowl of cereal. It's like, I had enjoy cereal. I had a bowl of cereal, and it was my favorite. And it was this, but I could have also had this. Or sometimes I like to have this, or this, or this, or this. And it's like he basically did like a Wikipedia article about stuff that was popular in the 80s, stuff that was popular in the 90s, and nerd things. Like, Did I, you know that cornflakes were made by Kellogg's? Uh, it's like, yeah. 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 So here's my example for those of you who haven't read. This is my this example of this. There's a paragraph where Wade, our, our teenage protagonist, which I think is important that he's this teenager, he describes the virtual car he's constructed for himself in the online world, right? Okay, so 
The DeLorean came outfitted with a non-functioning flux capacitor, but I'd made several additions to the equipment and appearance. First, I had installed an artificially intelligent onboard computer named Kit, purchased in an online auction, onto the dashboard, along with a matching red Knight Rider scanner just above the DeLorean's grill. Then I'd outfitted the car with an oscillation overthruster, a device that allowed it to travel through solid matter. Finally, to complete my 80s super vehicle theme, I'd slapped a Ghostbusters logo on each of the DeLorean's gull wing doors, then added the personalized plates that said ECTO-88. Oh my god. Oh my god. He's basically trying to say people in virtual reality can express their personal tastes through what they create, right? And that this is what he's into. But he's so obsessed with this culture, this geek stuff, that he thinks it's compelling and it's just a shopping list. So right. there's no explanation of why Wade finds these things intriguing. Just like, of course, of course a DeLorean is cool. Well, not everybody thinks yeah. a DeLorean is cool. And you don't even actually describe what a DeLorean is. If you haven't seen Back to the Future, right. you don't even fucking know what the hell he's talking about, right? That's fair. I mean, the DeLorean is a cool-looking car. <laughs> cool-looking car. And if you've watched Back to the Future... You know, so but I think that gets to something you said, I think, before we started really recording about like who who is this for? You know? Who's who's the target audience for this book? Oh, I'm, I'm probably gonna circle back to that a few times. Yeah. One of the things that I I felt was really strange was as I read the book, I thought, you know, so he violates Chekhov's gun so many times that I thought, you know, this feels like a first draft. And just a quick note for those of you who don't know, Chekhov's gun is the idea that if you introduce a gun in an early act in a play or movie or something, that that gun needs to show up again later and actually serve a purpose. You don't introduce something early in a narrative structure and then have it not go anywhere. Even a red herring is not considered a Chekhov's gun. It's considered the point of it is that it was to lead you astray. So if something's not there to lead you astray or to lead you to something, it's just superfluous. It's just there for no reason. So we don't like that. No, that it's basically a signpost of lazy, bad writing, or like Keith just said, a first draft. Right. And the thing about Chekhov's gun is not only do you have to have that gun fire at the you know second act or third act or whatever, but if you solve your problem at the end of the story with a gun, you have to establish that that gun is in the story before you can solve the problem with the gun. So it's not just about brandishing a firearm at the beginning of the story and then having it fire later. It's also about layering your story with details so that later on when you bring it into the story, it has some kind of... It makes sense. It makes logical yeah. sense. Yeah. Right. Right. There's, there's like a... Yeah. It's almost like there's an art form to writing. Almost. And, <laughs> and so what? when I read the book, I was like, you know, these are... His solutions to problems were really clever when they needed to be and all that, but he didn't establish things ahead of time. Or, you know, he would just be like, oh yeah, by the way, I, I sat down and played guitar for a summer and like mastered a Rush song because Holiday mentioned that he really liked the song. And so on a whim, I just happened to master this song. And what do you know? I just happened to have, that happened to have paid off, right? Yeah. And so when I got to the end of the book, he had like a little thank you that he wrote. He wrote a thank you to all of his test readers who had read several dozens of drafts. And I thought, this is not a first draft. This guy wrote this book and had people read it over and over and over again. And this is the 
that we're reading a final draft of a book that has a very strong first draft feel to it because he's got all these weird loose ends that, like, they're not bad ideas. Right. Just do do you think that his uh, test readers were like, hey, this DeLorean description, just because I just read that here, would be cool, but you need to, like, Make sure you add a Ghostbusters thing. Yeah, you can make it more 80s if you add a few more 80s things. Right. And I mean, does that make it cooler? Does that make you more nerdy because you've got a Ghostbusters logo on your DeLorean? Does that make it more? And I mean, at some point, you know, obviously this character is going to make decisions that are not like mine. I have to respect that. But no, I I, I think that that's the point. Like, Does it make it better? I think it doesn't Perfect. make it better. I think it just makes it saturated. That's such a great descriptor of what this book was. It was just, everything was so saturated. And a lot of people talked about, you know, well, there's all these references. And, you know, a real fan is going to pick up on all these references. A real nerd or a real, the gatekeeping, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that as well. Mm-hmm. And there was a six-digit number in the movie that I was curious about. I was like, you know, I wonder if that's an Easter egg. Huh. Which, for those of you who don't know what an Easter egg is, don't worry. The movie will make sure that you know. They will explain <laughs> it to you. Everything is explained to the point that it's just. I, Seriously, if you took out this four, if you took if you took out the exposition, the over clunky exposition, and you took out the laundry list and like just the list making of all the 80s nostalgia stuff, and you just had the story, like the book would have been a short story. Actually, you know what it would have been? It would have been the movie. Because the movie didn't do quite as much exposition. It just kind of plopped you in the world. And instead of having a paragraph describing the car, the car just happened to be there. And if you happen to freeze frame it, because that's what you're into, and you're like, oh, look, there's a Ghostbusters. And oh, look, there's a this and there's a that. But otherwise, you're like, oh, it's a cool, fast car. And I'm distracted by the action sequence of blah, 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 blah. Well, when I watched the movie today, again, (laughs) um, their walking facility and the number 43 keeps popping up. And I'm like, oh, there's going to be 42. 42's coming up, you know. And so, of course, when you see 42, you know, there's that little clever wink to the audience. And they did it very well in the movie. If you don't know what 42 means, right on. You can still watch the movie. And if you do know what 42 means, then you can jump around and like, oh, I got the reference, guys. I I got another. I got the reference. Well, and I think that's the key between being oversaturated and not. and, And it just becomes background noise. I think that like the idea of an Easter egg is that it's special that not everyone's going to get. But when the entire movie is, or the entire book is literally just stuff that is is geared for a specific audience and is overly explained, then there right. nothing is Easter eggs. Nothing's actually reference. Okay. It's not yeah. an allusion anymore to something else. It is literally the thing. So then who is this for? Is it for the initiated that, that don't need their hand held? Or is it for, like, your aunt who's like, oh, have you watched that Big Bang Theory show? Oh, it's so funny. You'd like it because they got all that stuff in it that you like. Oh, you my like, God. You know, and you're like, I'll check it out. And then you watch it and you're like, this is awful. <laughs> this show is not for me. This show is. Big Bang Theory, this is a show for the people who still make fun of people like me. Right. I don't know who this was for. I think you might be the target audience. And I know my husband is definitely the target audience of this. And 
he didn't read the book. So that's why he doesn't get to be on like the full podcast like you do. Um, but (laughs) he did like watch the movie and was like, yeah, I know that I'm the target audience, but, uh, I don't think he felt special about it. Anyways, but you are the target audience. Apparently. Because how old are you? Like, well, I'm 42. Right. Magic. I'm 42. You know, the answer to, oh no, I'm not going to do that. I'm 42. And so, yeah, I was born in 78, the same year Van Halen's first album came out. You know, Van Halen. <laughs> right. So, and I mean, not to be too spotlighty on it, but you're a white yeah, cis. Yeah, no, I played D&D in junior high school. and Yeah, so, so that's who it's for. And I feel like there's this right. big part of pop culture right now which is very much geared towards people from their mid thirties to mid to upper forties. And nostalgia is always a thing. Yeah. You have a bunch of TV producers that are my age and they're like, I want to see my favorite stuff on TV because I'm a producer and I have that power. And sometimes that's cool and we get cool things. Yeah. And sometimes we get this book. You know, I can't really say that I didn't enjoy reading the book because I kind of did. It, it has a charm to it. It's it's not polished. One of the things I thought was really interesting is the movie rights were secured um, on the same day it came out, yeah. which basically meant that they were like, oh yeah, this is going to be a hit and we're going to make it into a movie without yeah. like knowing yet because they just, it was like, oh, it's a sure bet because they had Will Wheaton already decided, you know, signed on and nerd stuff sells. Yeah, well, and... I, I did want to touch on this. I feel like the movie is actually kind of a representation of the very things that Wade finds distasteful about his culture being co-opted by outsiders who then take his precious thing and bastardize it for profit and suck the, the original intent out so that they can turn a quick buck. And the movie is exactly what Wade Watts was against and something that Ernest Klein is clearly against because as we all kind of know, Wade Watts is just Ernest Klein in a dystopian future where knowing that Falco is rap music, like Patrick Rothfuss kind of talks about how, you know, people will kind of talk down at the idea of writing a Mary Sue character. And that's a conventional thing. You're not supposed to write a Mary Sue, but Patrick Rothfuss was like, well, I mean, what about the Odyssey? That's a, you know, that's a Mary Sue. And what about Superman? What about, you know, he starts listing all these cool things and it's like, well, maybe a Mary Sue isn't necessarily a bad thing on its, on its own. Right. So it's, it's got some of that Beowulf to it where the character just happens to be good at all of the things that the, the quest that lay beyond have in store. Right. Well, definitely. I mean, he's our main character. And so of course he's going to be the special one, except that there's, there's two things I want to touch on that you just said. One is talking about how the movie is exactly what Wade wouldn't like. And I think that one change that they made really spoke to that. In the book, after he gets through the first level, which thankfully they <laughs> thankfully they shortened the levels and it was only three keys instead of three keys to three gates to three challenges, whatever. Anyways, they made it simpler, which is a good call. But anyways, after the first one, he becomes famous. And so he starts making money by doing endorsements and like all of this stuff. And, he, and that takes him away from being able to actually play the game. He's doing like reality TV type things and stuff. 
And it talks about how like that fame and that stuff is affecting and it take it makes it more work and less play and not, a, you know, all of this stuff. And it's like, oh, like, oh my God, that's a kernel of a really cool idea. And I don't think that Klein really fleshed it out, but it was there and it wasn't there at all in the movie at all. And that was right. They did. They did flush all that out and they made him fish people. Yeah, go ahead. No, so I mean, I just think that that was like a really an interesting change, especially pointing out the hypocrisy of, oh, we don't want this to monetize and change this thing that we love. But that's exactly what it was. And then the other thing that you said. Well, and I did pick up on some um, Holden Caulfield vibes from Wade Watts. Everybody around me is a phony and he suspends the whole book. Just everyone around me sucks except for me and my friends. And here's another Chekhov's gun. You know, our hero, Wade Watts, is an atheist. And it's very important that you know that. And then, um, you know, it never plays any important part of the story. I did, like, hear one guy's commentary YouTube where he talked about how Wade has replaced religion with worshipping video games or you know, he puts Holiday on a shrine, and you know his atheism is not relevant anyway. There's, it's Chekhov's gun. You bring up that a character is an atheist in the beginning. Okay, so as a reader, I'm like, all right, so I need to remember this, so that when I read, you know, in the later part of the book, I'm gonna go, oh, right on. His atheism saves the day, or not. Or it's a point like, of conflict I, because somebody else is like, I'm only winning these because, you know, God is guiding me. Yeah, that's actually pretty good. Jamie. The other thing that I now I remember from what you were saying before is um, you were talking about the Mary Sue character and how he's just really good at everything. In the movie, especially, he's like the chosen magic child. In the book, though, he's not the best at all the stuff. Artemis goes and h both do the second thing before him he has to get help from them it becomes more of a team of course he's our main character and he's going to be the one with the extra life at the end and blah 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 he had good skills and they had good skills but it almost built in that even though they were all like mary sue's in their own potential areas they they kind of had to come together which again i think undermines the whole thing of the easter egg hunt to begin with because it's like solve these riddles, blah, 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 and then one person will win, but it was impossible to do unless you had a team, and a team is not the same as a group, because the Sixters are the group with their evil thing. I mean, there's themes here, but they're just not fleshed out. Well, and, okay, so, like, let's say that Wade Watts is an atheist, and then later on in the story, he's the only character that resurrects. And, like, that's the thing, like, there's moments in the story where you're like, whoa, like, there's an idea here that the author clumsily overlooked. And I can say that with confidence, because every time that he does actually try to be clever, he explains that he's being clever so that you know he's being clever. Right, exactly. But then when he stumbles on something brilliant, you're like, you know, I'm doing all the work here. Like, you're not showing the monster on the screen, and so my imagination is filling in the gaps. And so that's why I'm terrified. It's not because the monster is terrifying. And it's the same idea. The only reason why I'm finding these, like, moments of brilliance in this story is because I'm doing all the heavy lifting. Yeah, exactly. And you're right. The atheist is the only one who resurrects. He's a Christ-like figure. Ah! Oh, God. <laughs> or does it? Well, and then he shaves off all of his body hair. Oh. And so he's now, he's no longer human. He's, no, no, he's, he's I mean, reborn. Oh, right. He's, yeah, he's 
this this naked blob. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like in the movie Alien, when they all come out of their stasis pods and they call the computer mother. Yes. You're like, whoa, right? One of those who are paying attention. I I think that the thing is that we want to know that the author has a sense of the big world and then is letting us see a bit into it. Yeah. as opposed to the authors explaining their thought process and thinking out loud and doing stream of right. consciousness. And now we also know every single thing the author does. Like, I don't need to know all the details. I just want to be in your cool world. Yeah. Have you seen that meme where it shows a guy and he's in a loud room and he's like yelling something into a woman's ear and she, she just looks so like, uh, she's just bored and he's mansplaining something to her. And it's one of my favorite meme templates. That's kind of what you're getting with this book. You're kind of getting this guy's view of the world. Like if you were an Ernest Klein's therapist, just read this book and you're good. <laughs> I love it. I do want to talk um, some more about some of the major differences. Okay, so I've got my little list here. And we can talk about whether I think most of them were better in the movie. I, I do think the adaptation took its job of being an adaptation very seriously. And also... Ernest Klein wrote the screenplay with other people. So I think like you talked about the draft mentality, like they were like, okay, 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 but let's make it so people can like, it's accessible. Right. So um, one of the first things was that really stuck out to me was how he met Artemis slash Sam much earlier in the movie. And there was the addition of the resistance. So that resistance that Sam was a part of like added to the world building with a real quick and easy way. And also by having them meet early it took away some of that stupid manufactured drama of like, when's he going to meet her? When's he going to meet her? When's he going to meet her? And he literally doesn't meet her until like, I don't know, the second to last page practically. And then, and then it's like, oh, but I still love you and I don't care and that you look different. And but it was so rushed and awful. I liked that he met her earlier, even if I still, still think that the romance part was just stupid and forced in and completely lame because as you know, Kalia hates romance and love and all things gushy, apparently. But what did you think about the change of meeting Artemis Sam earlier and the addition of the resistance? Well, let's see. As far as meeting uh, earlier, um, it turned the story into a team building exercise kind of thing rather than Artemis and all that. And the other thing I didn't like, which is related, was they turned, the, instead of all five of these players all independently working to try to win, Right. And having that that respectful kind of conflict with each other. Let's all make sure that Parsible wins and we're all like henchmen and NPCs in his. And I didn't really care for that. Again, the book did it better. But in order to enjoy that, you have to read the book. Yeah. And I wouldn't recommend that. Save your recommendation until the end. But yeah, right. by making them into um, sidekicks instead of equal footing. Right. Um, I yeah. think detracted. And then we have the whole death of Daito, which is not in the movie. And okay, first of all, like, I don't like want to see someone die, obviously, but at the same oh. time, that motivated them that was like, that that told you that not everybody was going to make it and raised the stakes in the movie. I didn't have any tension at all. Like, I wasn't scared for them. <sighs> yeah, I don't know if I felt tension in either of the stories. Well, when they killed Dido in the book, I was like, okay, so the other Japanese guy might also die. And who knows? I said it would actually be very 
fitting if either H or Artemis died. Like that would be, you know, a much bigger, of course, it's not going to be a main sidekick. It's going to be the sidekick that we hardly knew, but at least yeah, somebody yeah. died. At least there was some kind of actual drama or real world threat because Wade's place gets exploded. His aunt is dead and he literally doesn't even really think about it anymore until the very end. And then it yeah. feels very slapped on. Here's where I did think about this and I thought, well, do you want to spend the story like watching this character relive moments with his hand and feel bad or do you just want to move on and follow this cool adventure and so even as a reader i was like you know i know they should probably weave the death of his family more into things but the book was not, long enough <laughs> you know and like you can't kill the, the the prize at the end you can't kill the artemis girl because she's she's the real prize <laughs> i mean and i'm not opposed to that but if you read the book Let's, why don't we talk about that um, really quick? Um, she tells him, look, I don't want to, I don't want to get romantically involved with you. And the author goes out of his way to make sure that the reason why is not because she doesn't like him or doesn't have feelings. It's because she's losing focus and she wants to win this prize. And, you know, she kind of, yeah, she has like reasons for why she wants to, you know, win. That is not just having a cool house. Because that's kind of what our, our Parsible, he just wants cool stuff. That's why he wants to win. And Artemis wants to change the world. She wants to make the world better for people that are her, people that she's never met. She cares about people that she doesn't know. She's probably one of the more likable characters for that reason. No, but you're right. And that's why I like that they put the resistance into the movie because it, yeah, it brought right. that aspect yeah. of her. And then I like the change where she was the one who was caught in IOI and it wasn't right. Parcival Wade and it was her. She had more to do in the movie in a different way. In the book, she had more to do because she was just as good, if not better than him at playing the game. And in the movie, they took that away from her, but they got made her actually the brave one inside the place, like an actual danger and running yeah, this she, resistance. And Yeah. She actually is the one that faces all the real threat in this story. Even when Wade's house gets blown up, he's not even there. You know, I mean, he's in danger um, and he's clumsy. He He's both a character that's very savvy about how tech works and how anonymity works, but also when it's convenient to the story, he also doesn't know how to keep his mouth shut. And I know he, they needed him to mess up so that there was some way yeah i get that but um but speaking of his team we haven't really talked about h i think we should talk about h a change that i liked a lot was that h in the book was this white very cool bro dude who was like wade's best friend and then it turns out h is a black lesbian lady okay that's hella cool much love to all the lesbian black ladies I like sure. the fact that in the movie, they realized that tonally it would be a shit move to make a lesbian black lady wish, oh, oh, wish so much and go into a virtual reality world where her only wish is to be a white cis dude. Like, no, I'm glad it was an orc. Like, that was cool. Like, H right. was like, I'm going to be yeah. big and I'll be a mechanic and I'm going to be awesome. And it has nothing to do. And so that was a good change. Because I will tell you, when I was reading the book and I got to the part where it was revealed what H, you know, who H really was. I was like, seriously, that's because that's what everybody wants to be, right? Is a white dude, right? <laughs> Apparently. And uh, anyways. You know, I think a very good writer could actually maybe put that in a story. And, if he had fleshed it out, know. it might have mattered. But since he didn't, it was just there. 
Yeah, to be fair, like, I wouldn't, if I was sitting down to write a book, and I was like, all right, cool, so I've got my Trapper Keeper, and I've got my Ovaltine, or my Tang, and I'm going to write a book now. I'm going to put on some Duran Duran, and I'm going to sit in my bat suit. Now I'm going to write. I would not be like, I'm going to write this black character, and she's going to be a lesbian, and but she really wants to be a white dude. Like, I would, now, I would not go anywhere near that. Somebody else might be able to do that. Uh, the right kind of writer could maybe tackle something like that and do it in a really interesting way, way above my pay grade. Even just a throwaway line, like, I had to be a white dude because, you know, they're the ones with yeah. all the power in the world. Sure. Something. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, you know, I will say that there were moments in the book that were very touching. And when they talk about how colorblind, you know, the internet can be, and you don't know what I look like on the other end of the internet, um, and how that does create some form of equality, that there was actually some pretty, there was some cool ideas there. And I feel like Ernest Klein actually, oh man, oh man, I know you're going you're gonna to get mad. You're, maybe you're going to get mad. I don't know. I'm going to throw this out. I feel like Ernest Klein is one of the good guys. He's just, you know, like he, I think he really means well. Like when he writes, he doesn't want the main character girlfriend to be, you know, a Hollywood kind of clone pretty girl, right? He kind of wants the curvy, uh, Rubenesque is what he said. And she's got a birthmark. And I mean, okay, like, I give him the credit. He means well. He means, you know I mean? he means well. Right. He's, he's definitely operating in his own, in the world in which he was raised. Yeah. And he means well. Right. I will give right. you that. Um, yeah. A birthmark? Okay. She's that still, makes her kind of cool. I mean, and she's still his age. It's not like she's a 42-year-old woman, you know, in a wheelchair. I mean, for goodness sake. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's... it, it's Oh, yeah. It's like the ugly girl. Uh, the Hollywood version of the ugly the girl. Glasses. Oh, she's wearing... She's got a ponytail, and she's got glasses. And, and Ernest Klein is like, I like ponytails and, stuff and, and glasses. And I like curvy women. And I agree with them but i just feel like his his test readers i would be surprised if any of them were women of color or I don't women know, i don't even know if he knows women <laughs> just you know, he brought this up the way that he portrays asian kids in this book is like um like you could be, you could try to be clever and be like well that's how asian kids were portrayed in the 80s so you know i'm just it's a callback to a you know like, I'm just, I'm referencing something, right? Like, you could try to, like, try to be clever, right? But when, okay, I've never, I've never read a book where as I'm reading the way that the characters are described in the book, I'm like, this is really racist. Like, <laughs> and I'm not just talking about, like, the bowing, which is, you know, whatever, but just, it's just so, I don't, I really felt like Ernest Klein had never met an Asian person. And I know he grew up in, in Ohio, but... It just really comes off like he's seen them on TV. And I do, I did actually laugh to myself today. But when I was watching the movie earlier today, I noticed that I found myself saying like, oh, look, they, they got their own little short round in this movie. And I'm not like, that's so fucked up. I'm not even, but that's kind of what happened. They got this little Asian kid and he's, oh my God. 
God. Well, they had to have some Indiana Jones reference in there, right? I would think that Spielberg's involvement... I'm surprised that his DeLorean didn't pull a giant rock behind it because... I was going to say, I was kind of expecting the big boulder at some point, but uh, Mm -hmm. we didn't get that. Okay, so we haven't talked about Holiday. One of the things that really drives me crazy, drives it just it's one of those like pet peeve things that, you know, people write like a five list, five things I hate on Facebook, whatever. One of them is this weird hero worship idea that one person is responsible for the fame, right? Like Steve Jobs is responsible for Apple, nobody else. Or <laughs> Bill Gates is responsible for Windows and Microsoft. You're welcome. You know, I'm going to get nerdy about something. I don't know if that what? is appropriate. For In this podcast? No. This particular episode, but um, there's a Linux is one of my passions. And I found a way to bring it into the podcast. I, um, there's a guy named Richard Stallman who's like a, he's like a heavy player. If you go and read about him, he's pretty much like one half of what makes Linux. Like he's, he, like he's the peanut butter to Linus Torvald's chocolate, right? These two guys came together and they created an operating system on the internet, which is pretty cool. And Richard Stallman was working at MIT like two months ago or three months ago and kept using the email service to write really fucked up, sexist, creepy shit. And then at one point he started, he started defending stuff that, you know, um, dehumanizes children and shit like that, right? I don't know, exploit. Exploit is the word I was looking for. And um, he got fired. Um, and he got fired from that job because he was violating the message board rules. And they were like, no, you can't, you can't do that, dude. You can't. Now, what does that have to do with Holiday and all this? A lot of people on the Linux forums and stuff, they're all like, well, what are, what are we going to do without Richard Stallman? It's like, well, turns out that what makes things like Apple and Samsung or whatever, right? Amazon, right? What, what makes these, it's not just one person, one dude. It's not, it's, it's a team of people that we don't really ever hear about. We don't hear about those people. And how I feel like the Oasis is another example of that where Again, we're seeing the fictional world through this one person's eyes, and this is how he thinks the world works. He thinks that Apple is the is the result of just one guy who, who just like got up one day and put on a turtleneck and was like, I'm gonna create Apple, and then he did it. And poof, right? And then Elon Musk was like, I don't know, he wiped the cocaine off his face and he was like, I'm gonna create the Tesla vehicle, and you know, right? And that's not how it really works. And so the Oasis is the Oasis is such a, a painfully absurd thing to read about. And I watched a movie where an animated lion ate an animated worm. And I went, ew, because I was able to suspend my disbelief that much. But when I read about the Oasis, I'm, I'm just, and I know that you were asking about Holiday, but I feel like those two things are so intertwined. I don't know. Was that too ranty? No, um, not at all. I don't I, know that I really went off. I didn't really address holiday so much as this weird idol worship that we, I have, I had hero worship when I was, you know, when I was a teenager. There were people that I looked up to and they became these iconic, you know, whatevers. I, okay. I do think that that's a, a major part though. There's not only the, the idea of the one person being the creator and the I mean, even Ogden, who was like the second in command, is called the great and powerful Og, you know, and stuff like this, which is a Wizard of Oz thing in case in case you didn't get that. 
So there's definitely that. It could have been a Wozniak reference. Oh, that's true. Oh no. Oh my God. So many levels. But I do think that the idea of having this hero worship is, is part and parcel to what you're talking about before about gatekeeping and to what really matters and who gets the credit and who gets the glory versus the team. Right. So in, again, I think we had these elements of a team versus a single person. And I think that was one of the themes that the book was trying to point out that he might've gotten all the credit, but his biggest regret in life, you know, part of it was that he broke apart yeah. the team. And so, and then in the movie, yeah. they took it a step further by saying that the bad guy, Norman, or whatever his name was, his motivation for being so bad was that he had been on the team. He'd been an intern who had been part of it, but that wasn't getting any credit and didn't get to, you know, have the glory and blah, blah, and had like, you know, residual angst about it and yada, yada. So there are like themes and like little tendrils of ideas about teamwork and who gets the credit and who doesn't. But I also thought it was just really interesting that they were going to take Holiday, who was apparently based on Willy Wonka and Howard Hughes. Okay. Apparently also had Asperger's. And I thought, well, that's, that's complicated for a lot of reasons. It, it, again, it could have been something better. It could have been like, look, here, like somebody who has Asperger's is still able to function and still able to create and still able to do all these amazing things. But instead it was like, uh, yeah, he had this one thing he was good at and then he sucked in everything else and he died sad and alone and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, that's a fucked up message. Can we maybe not with the ableist right. shit? So yeah, I mean, and but really the whole point of Holiday was the Oasis. He wasn't really a person or a thing like all of his trappings all of his journals and all of his archives were just only interesting because of the prize of all of this money and control and blah 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 otherwise it, nobody would have cared what his favorite movie was or that he liked that rush song or anything else so he was kind of destroyed by his own creation or eclipse might be a better word by what he had created and that can be kind of sad except that we never really got to sit with that it was just he was the creator, he's amazing, Wade loves him and worships him without even really understanding why. Right. Well, and here's the thing. You you nailed a bunch of things that I, I thought about, and one of them is, who's the villain of the story? You brought up uh, Sorrento? Yes. Why is Sorrento the bad guy? What does Sorrento actually want? Sorrento is the bad guy because he wants to win so that he can, I guess have lots of money well and, yeah and in the movie they make it more clear that he's going to monetize like the field of vision monetize. yeah so there'll be right. all the ads and stuff like pop-up ads and i forgive me because sure. i did only watch this movie once and i can't remember if it's right. this movie or some <laughs> some other movie where they're talking about that maybe it was a black mirror episode where they were like oh and we get to we can we can cover this much of the space before the people start having seizures was that this movie that was this movie no, right i don't that doesn't ring true to me, but I've tried to watch this movie six times. So I feel like it might have been or something, but the idea is like just like as much yeah. as we you know, as much real estate as you can have, which yeah. you can totally see. We all have pop up ads on our The Seizures thing right. was this movie. Oh, I'm being told from the voice in the other room who's been that I'm right, and it is it is in this movie. So he his thing is like just up to the point where it's dangerous for people. Like he doesn't really care about people. It's it's the money. In the book, I don't feel like it was quite as clear as that. But I again, it's it's a cost risk ratio type thing, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and Sorrento is supposed to be a metaphor. Oh, <laughs> which I think it's funny. Ernest Klein hates metaphors. I don't know if you picked up on that, but everything is like something else. There's he never leaves anything for you to figure out. Sorrento is, you know, electronic arts as a character, right? He's like the metaphor for pay to, you know, to to become stronger in a game by paying paying for it rather than earning it. Yeah, so, the way a real gamer. So yeah. it's basically um, Star Wars: The New Republic versus World of Warcraft. Like the paywall. I think they call it a paywall or yes. something. Yes, it, it's pay to play. And it's it's basically the same kind of thing where you have people with their Candy Crush or their Lily's Garden or like any of those other, like even like the Farmville Facebook game things right. where you can play to a certain amount. And then, but if you want to get past a level or if you want an extra life or you want to play for more than two minutes every day and you know it's freaking addictive, so we do want to play it more than two minutes yeah. a day, you got to spend the dollar ninety nine to you can get extra keys or tokens or seeds or whatever's right? Like, how much does it cost a month to play World of Warcraft? Uh, I think it's fifteen dollars a month. At least it used to be. That's correct. How much does it cost to play Star Wars? It's free. It's free if you want that extra gear. You can pay for it, right? Now, here's the argument, right? But when you say that you don't have to pay for it to get in World of Warcraft, you know, fair, yeah, you do. Fair you point. You have to pay a monthly fee. Okay, right? I will. But you don't have, right? And yeah, so, yeah, and so, yeah. And you had to pay for the thing to download to begin with, although that has changed right. over the years, too. Yeah, you can play up to, like, level 20 20 now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you can't use mail. Whatever. Sorry. We're all... A thing no, now, well, but you're right. You're right, and that was that was correct. So I guess my my simile no, no. was backwards. Yeah. It's like World of Warcraft versus New Republic. In Does, the I mean, yeah. you know, there are cooler things that you have better opportunities if you pay in Star Wars. But I mean, like, is is it wrong that I have to pay more to continue to play Candy Crush? Is that evil? Well, no, and I don't think so because I think hurt? we I think we want to pay for the media. Like, I am really sure. against. Things like Pirate Bay, and sure. um, uh, I can't think of any other ones because I don't use them. But like places where right. they basically steal shit, right? It's not yeah. cool. Um, I'm right. sorry, torrent is that a thing? You know, okay. I feel like you should pay. So I have a CBS All Access account, and I don't give that to people because I like that CBS has got a bunch of Star Trek on it, and I want sure. to encourage them to make more Star Trek. And if yeah. everybody I know gets my access, then that's like. People, you're not, you should pay for the entertainment that you want to see. We can vote with our wallets in a very yeah, phenomenal way. So I don't mind. That's why I'm a patron of things like Mission Log and Buffy the Buffering the Vampire Slayer. That's why I buy things from local artists. I feel like we should sure. do the plug I, here for my Patreon, y'all, because it does cost me money to read these books and <laughs> rent these movies. <laughs> but... Okay, anyways, so yeah, it's not fundamentally evil. I think what makes it evil for Sorrento is the cavalier attitude of how far can we right. push it before people have seizures and die, and then also killing sure. Wade's family. Like, that's what makes that's, it evil. Right. And the cheating well, aspect. The like, right, right. The fact that Sorrento murders people <laughs> probably makes him a bad guy. I'm going to give you that. Um <laughs> <laughs> and cheating and cheating because he's a cheater and he like has that i rock guy doing his dirty work for him and and yada yada so he's i feel like the reason that we don't like sorrento i, I don't know if, if i mean sure we can talk about murder and all that kind of stuff right 
let's just pretend like that's not... No, I'm kidding. But I think the reason why we don't like the, the character is not because of any of that. I think it's just because he's a smug jerk. I think that's the real reason we don't like him. And it's sad, but that's why I didn't like him. Because he was, he was fake and phony. He was a fake gamer. He was a fake gamer, not a real gamer. Yeah, and he, and he had a really cool setup. And that's not cool. And, right. and he had and, money. And the, the other thing is that the people that work for companies like Electronic Arts and these other ones that people in the gaming community are mad at, the people that work for those companies are gamers. They care about that stuff. They, they went into the industry because that's what they like. That's what they, they're passionate about. Those are the people that you're creating into an evil monolithic you know, right. villain. Well, it's just, it's like what sci-fi does and usually and does well sometimes is it takes an idea and then it takes it to its extreme logical conclusion. So you have this idea of this corporation and then you have the idea of like them just farming and the Sixers one right after another and like the monetizing. And then you have the idea of slave labor, right? And the indentured servitude right. aspect of it, which is evil. Like right. He's a bad guy yes. because he oversees these bad things. But like that is that's built in to be the foil for this, you know, and also because we don't want it to be too complicated. We need books like this. When you have a hero's journey and a quest, it's like a video game, not maybe the modern day video games, which I hear are very cool, but like the older video games where it's pretty slash and dash. It's pretty sure. simple. Like you're the good guy. You kill the bad thing at the end and you win the girl. <laughs> I mean, prize, I mean, girl, and then you're fine. And so this movie doesn't have time or room for layered characters and complex people with human emotions sure. that might have different layers to them. They just... Well, right. And, I mean, that can be fun, right? Like, yeah. Um, I, I want to touch on holiday, and then I want to go through my, yeah. my list of themes and messages just to make sure we've touched oh, yeah. on them. Yes. I, I know you had opinions on holiday. You didn't like you the way really, he was portrayed? I don't like the... I mean, I, I don't know that anybody would possibly disagree with me on this but the way that they portray a person with holiday's affliction and i want to say it like that because i don't think they actually ever say what he's got going on he's just different like yeah. his favorite food is hot pockets and he likes chuck e cheese and and then they show him on screen and he's just like you know i don't, I don't know i can't i don't i don't want to like imitate him but because it feels it's like super it's super cringy to watch him on screen and he's like, I'm, I'm a basket case, but I'm brilliant. And that's a very common trope. It's, and, it's like the beautiful mind thing, except, yeah. that he's, except that he's mumbly and needs a yeah. haircut. Yeah. It, it's not, it's not a good portrayal. And the fact that people read that, you know, what it was in the book and the movie and they're like, oh yes, he has Asperger's, which like I said before is pretty shitty. And um, unfair in a variety of ways. But Ernest Klein didn't say that, did he? Did he actually say that in the book? Or the I think in the book, it, there's a reference that's made. I could be wrong because I read the book a while back. Right, right. But it, it reference is made. His father was an abusive alcoholic. His mother was bipolar. And he suffered from something that would be diagnosed today, but they didn't have diagnosis for it back then. So extrapolate at will but right. kids in the 80s who right. had something 
And and from his actions, it's definitely not ADHD or ADD. Do you know what I mean? He wasn't. So it feels like it is coded to be Asperger's. The um, lack of social skills, the um, highly good at one thing. In the movie, he even played where he doesn't make eye contact with people. Like, I feel like there's enough there to to make that. But I do agree that it's it's very coded. I don't know how. It's like the one thing that Ernest Klein decided to be subtle about. <laughs> like it was the one thing where he's like, "Well, I'm not gonna go there." Maybe not in the book, but in the movie, I definitely I felt like it wasn't overly subtle that he had some sort of mental oh, deficiency, whether no, or not it was Asperger's or not. The movie was so like I'm looking at this and I'm like, "How is this not?" It's like when Michael Scott Im- imitates an Asian person. Oh. In front of an Asian person and the show. Yeah. 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 And, you, and you're watching it and you're like, oh, don't do that. Just stop right now. Like, I'm mm-hmm. so uncomfortable right now. That's how I felt when I watched Holiday on, on this movie. I was like, you need to stop right now. You just need to knock this off. And I know there's people that are like, well, but I know someone like that. Yeah. That there's a line between representation in media and... Um, shoehorning something in or overplaying it and making it into either a proxy or a prop. And I feel like this wasn't representation because if it's representation, it has to be called, right? You know, you can't say, oh, that character who had one line in that one scene um, about the weather was gay. So see, we had a gay character. No, I'm sorry. That doesn't count. If you have a, they have to say I am gay and I'm important and this is why, then you get to say you had a gay character. So representation does matter. But if you have something that is in a negative portrayal and it's not called, then you don't get to claim representation in a positive light. I'm trying to say that Revenge of the Nerds is... It's gross and disgusting. Is that uh, what you're trying to say? Well, I will say that. Yes. <laughs> it's not that we can't have this stuff in movies. Because you hear people say, like, you can't even say anything without... Obs-. And it's like, no, you can have stuff. It's just we're, we're, we're smarter about how we go about it. Yeah, we've learned. We know better. So let's do better. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go through my themes real fast. I think we touched yeah. on most of them, but okay. So we had the theme of friendship. It's different than the theme of teamwork. I think the theme of teamwork came off better in the book, actually. At the at, like you said in the movie, they were definitely a team, but they were a team for the purpose of one person winning, as opposed to the book where they were like a team of people who valued each other, and it wasn't all about one person. That's my opinion. As for friendship, the really the only friendship we had was between Parsifal and H, so that was fine, but I don't really think that we learned anything or grew or anything. I guess you could say in teamwork, like, the whole Oasis showed up for this massive fight at the end. Well, I mean, you know, when he rallies the whole internet, basically, in the book, it was like, why would anybody work against their own self-interest? And I think that one thing Ernest Klein was trying to say was that people will do things that aren't in their best interest because sometimes the needs of the many <laughs> say it. Out, oh, uh, say outweigh it. the needs of the few. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. Okay. So I've never actually seen Star Trek, but I know. <gasps> that, you know I know. It's, oh. it's, I'm not that kind of nerd. That's, the That's okay. Thing. Nerds are like not this monolithic thing, right? That's see um, exactly. I am I'm enough of that kind of nerd for both of us. So you're welcome. I'm well. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, so as far as like H and 
Arsenal. I mean, they're just a couple bros, right? They're just yeah. a couple bros in there. It would be interesting if H had been not a lesbian. Keep the gender, keep the African-American aspect, but that totally takes H. H is a sexless prop, you know? So we technically have another woman in the story, except that they've not been, you know, presented that way. And then they're just, they're a not, it's not even a, it's not even a thing. I just, just saying, I, I'm all for lesbians. Yes, and, so, and lesbian gamers and lesbians, you know, kicking ass. But yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a choice. It's an interesting choice. So hmm. the parts in the book that I really did emotionally have, you know, a reaction to was kind of they went into Asia's backstory. It was really, honestly, really pretty, like really beautiful. And maybe I'm only like remembering it and maybe I'm revising it, but. I just remember reading it and thinking, like, that's this is pretty cool. Like, you know, good on him to portray her. I don't know. I feel like he did a pretty cool job. There's some shitty things that they say in the story that they didn't repeat in the movie. Thankfully. But I, not, I kind of feel like he did a pretty good... Like, she was one of my favorite characters in the movie. Um, and the teamwork in the, in the movie was... It, it's like, why are they team members? Why are they on the same team, though? Yeah. The other theme that was real big was okay. the reality... So we have virtual reality versus real reality. I don't know if this book or this movie is really trying to give us messages about if one is better or the other, the idea of escapism or escapism maybe has gone too far. Do you feel like there are messages about these things? Or do you think that it was just like a cool setting to tell an adventure story? You know, I kind of feel like one of the things that that I can kind of infer from some of that is our hero, he's described as like an overweight kind of unlikable person in real life and then he's like kind of a, a rock star in in this virtual world right so there's that duality which you know obviously Ernest Klein thought of when he wrote this right but then at one point his escapism actually allows him to start like working out starts like doing fitness stuff and he actually starts eating better and like there's this part in the story where he rebuilds himself and he doesn't have anybody around to motivate him to do that and and yet the escapism is kind of what allowed him to emotionally rebuild in order to fix the things that were important in real life and i can relate to that you know like i lost 200 pounds playing world of warcraft i was escaping obviously and I was 540 pounds and I was on oxygen and through my escapism of playing in this pretend world, I ended up losing a lot of weight from just not eating. I went to a therapist and told her I lost 200 and some pounds and she goes, how did you do that? And I said, I played World of Warcraft, you know, and she was like, what? And I said, that's really, that's really weird, right? She's like, not really. It's not really that. I said, it's a really unhealthy way to you know, she's like, well, yeah, that, you know, obviously there's more healthy ways of doing it, but I don't know if Ernest Klein set out to, to like explore the duality of reality versus cyber reality. I'm sure, I mean, he, I'm sure he thinks about that stuff, right? It would be, it would be kind of unfair to say that he, this stuff didn't occur to him. And I think that he kind of did want to explore some of that stuff, but the whole book is kind of built around that. 
Yeah, and I think that it had a lot of interesting ideas, like how society has de degraded to the point where everybody escapes, and it didn't seem like there were people without the internet, without the ability to log into the Oasis. That seemed like a thing. Even people who had practically like nothing had that. Right. And then, I mean, then you had different levels. You could have just the visor. You could have the visor and then the gloves. You could have the gloves and then the thing around your middle. You could have, you know what I mean? Like you could have all these extra, but like the base level, like we were talking before, was, was at least available is all the high school classes were in the Oasis. So there wasn't actually classrooms and there wasn't actually schools anymore, which I will tell you when I read this the first time, I was like, wow, that's an interesting idea. Dude, we are recording this during the freaking COVID pandemic and my kid is doing all of her schoolwork via Zoom and apps yeah. on the laptop. Like it is right. all virtual now. Yeah. So it's not that far-fetched. <laughs> and if she had a virtual reality thing where she could actually like interact with her friends more, you know, during the quote unquote school day or have a, like be able to raise her hand and have her teacher see her. Her teacher's got 15 or 16 different tiny boxes on her screen trying to keep track of the like 16 second graders on a Zoom call. My God, this woman deserves hazard pay. Like it's crazy. So I, I just think that that's really interesting how just in a couple of years from this book being written until today, like, wow, like, okay, I can kind of see this. Now, the idea of losing yourself is dangerous in any way. You know, and sure. we do that on the internet. We do that with our Candy Crush or our World of Warcraft or, you know, even books or whatever, movies. Yeah. So I think that there could be a lesson. We don't currently have slave camps where they'll come and kidnap you from your house and make you work if you don't pay your bills. But I mean, who am I to say? Give it another six months and another pandemic and that might be where we're at. I mean, you, you say that, but this book really likes to... Get into the nostalgia of the 1980s, right? But like, doesn't talk about the AIDS epidemic. It's kind of a big part of the 80s, right? Doesn't talk about it, right? Yeah. And right now we're talking about how we're not having these these virtual slave camps, but kind of are. You and I aren't there. We're not seeing it, but they've got nets around the buildings at the Apple manufacturing plants. Those nets are there to keep employees from killing themselves at the factories. Fair enough. We, we do have slavery that feeds our love of technology. You know, a lot of the scam artists in India, they didn't like wake up and say, I think I'm going to go get a job as a scam artist today. Maybe they care about somebody that needs to eat food. And yeah. they're like, hey, you know. No, so you're right. Kinda... That's it's a really good point. You are you're very right. I, and again, it's that idea of like what you don't see right in front of you. Sometimes it's easy to forget right. that it's there. And yeah, yeah. And what doesn't touch you? Because you're you're right. I mean, the AIDS epidemic was big. It's bigger for certain populations than others. Yeah. Okay. So another theme: corporations can be evil. Yes. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which you know that definitely holds true. I do. I want to say before my final thoughts and my sum up sure. is that. You know, at the end of the book, Wade says, like, he kisses her and he's like, for the first time in a long time or first first time since I can remember, I didn't want to log into the Oasis because, like, reality was better in this moment. Like, he's kissing the girl. Like, okay. In the movie, they're making out in the very last shot. But the voiceover is like, we turn the Oasis off once a week. <laughs> I was like... Oh my god. Right. Like because maintenance doesn't exist. Well, yes. 
but it's like it, there's a difference between being like I really enjoy like like this moment in time this real reality version is yeah. better than what I could plug into and like my real right. self versus in the movie where it's like oh yeah the oasis is still totally a thing but you know we we force people to like interact with each other once a week yeah, right basically so that right. we don't have fomo because we're going to be logged off to me i mean i don't know like i just it, very ending left a weird taste in my mouth in the movie in the book it, i was like oh right. that's kind of sweet you know one of the things that i did notice wade didn't have anyone around him to help him get out of the nice guy zone that he found himself in he didn't have anyone around to say hey man you know your view of people and your view of women and you're right like it's really reductive and it's kind of kind of ugly and it's it's not healthy dude right wade was the way he was kind of because he didn't have anyone around he had the oasis where he could go to school i remember i texted you a few months ago like why didn't wade go to a therapist in the oasis he could have gone to a therapist there were these resources and it could have made for it like you could have like a sopranos kind of thing where it's like i've got this stuff going on i'm gonna go to a therapist right <laughs> but all right, but my point is that some kids were using the Oasis to get away from bad stuff that they have no control over, and now you're shutting it off once a week. So <laughs> the Oasis is such a tangled mess that it's hard to come up with a theme there. But it's true, because obviously he had a bunch of money. Where does he get that money from? They, they obviously must have monetized <laughs> at least a little bit. No, monetizing is evil and wrong. <laughs> It's just right. I know only if Sorrento does it, not not if Wade yeah, does it. Right. Which is again funny because in the book he totally freaking monetized the shit out of his life. Okay, those are my themes. Do you have anything else that you want to talk? Because we're we need to wrap up, so it's not a three hour long podcast. But right. do you have anything yeah. else that's real important before we get to final thought? And was it worth the time? One of the things I did notice about about the characters in this story were like the villains were so one-dimensionally evil i mean in the movie they would actually like do a close-up on this woman's face that was not in the book right mm -hmm. and then would say something really sinister and like then they would like we're evil and the really great villains a lot of people like to say that the villain thinks that they're the hero and i don't think that the villain necessarily has to think that i do think the villain needs to feel justified in their behavior not necessarily that they're the hero like i know what i'm doing is fucked up but this is the right thing to do and sometimes doing the right thing is not easy like i'm justified rather than i'm the hero right but these characters were like today we're going to go do evil <laughs> it's just you could have kind of explored is monetizing always bad don't people monetize podcasts like patreon and that kind of thing is that wrong and evil or is that okay and i don't know i don't know it's totally that, that okay was, it's totally okay yeah okay, cool yeah i think that was it i mean i don't know if that fits into any category of what we we're talking about but just the characters in this story were just i mean i think we could just put that back to like the writing yeah they were just single dimensional Irock was the like most likable character in the movie. Irock, he conspired with people that tried to get Wade murdered. I thought about that later on. I was like, you know, he's the most likable character in this story. And he doesn't really do anything wrong. He's just kind of, I mean, at one point he calls Sorrento a kick. He said, man, you're, you're being like, you've got a camper mentality. And I love that, right? They didn't explain it. They just said it, right? And 
And I'm like, you know, he's this likable guy. He's, he's got comical, comical little quips and everything. And then I'm like, well, he does help them try to basically get Wade murdered. So I guess he's evil. <laughs> it goes back to Sorrento. I guess Sorrento's evil because he does try to murder people. Yeah. Here's the theme. The whole, like, real gamer versus fake gamer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why is Wade the real gamer in this story? Is it because he has an, a Wikipedia knowledge of stuff? Yes. Or, okay. Or is it because, like, because he's got, there's this team of people, they make up, like, the knowledge base, right? And they help their, they help the Sixers out and stuff. And those guys are nerds too, right? They're real gamers. Like, yeah. they knew the, Right. Are they so, in the book? Because I don't remember them being in the book, but they were definitely in the movie. And also, like, there was one very pretty girl in there who, I, sorry, I noticed her, but, like, she was, like, and the camera kept lingering on her. I kept expecting that to, like, pay off or somewhere to go or, like... like have a sympathetic feeling for the heroes and help them. Something. Yeah, it was very strange. But, like, yeah, there was this whole thing, and... Yeah, those were all, like, the geeky gamers. You could tell because they were all dressed like nerds. <laughs> well, right, they were, like, right, they were monolithic nerds, and some of them were, like, overweight. and, and Mostly white, girl. too. Just gonna. And if you watch the way the red-headed girl, like, she's a very, you said she was a really cute, pretty girl, but they made sure that she looked kind of fringy. You know, she had like the crazy eyes and the, mm -hmm. and you know, she had an encyclopedic knowledge and she would just sort of rattle things off and, you know, she had that Rain Man kind of thing going too. But like, what, what constitutes a real gamer and what constitutes a fake gamer? If you like check your scorecard, I got all the references except for two songs from the book. Does, am I, do I count? Do, am I, do I win something? Well, you're a real gamer according to, to him, but you're a fake nerd according to me because you haven't seen Star Trek yet. So you just can't right. win. This is a game you cannot win. <laughs> right. No, and I think that that's, that's super, because even like in the book, the IROC character's in the book, but he's barely there and he's a freaking poser is according yeah. to, to Wade. is like, yeah. oh yeah, he pretends, blah, 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 but he's not any good. Uh, you know and this is the thing they didn't have alts in in oh, this yeah. but do you remember in world of warcraft you'd have your main and then you'd have your alts and so like right. my main is a you level yeah exactly and my main would be like this high level kick-ass all the awesome armor and then i'd go play a little alt and you'd be in a little newbie area and somebody would come along and be like oh do you want me to show you how to do it and you're like right. dude you don't know who i really am <laughs> okay i've been in situations where um, I've had someone come along and help me out, and they don't know that they're helping me out. They just think they're helping, you know, a traveler out. I think that there are some pretty remarkable things that you can experience when you play this. And I did get some of that when I read the books. So it's not that, you know, I just want to, like, throw rocks at something. Maybe that's part of why I'm throwing rocks at it. It's because, in a way, like, I kind of feel very connected to it because of who I am. And my association to that stuff. So I, maybe I'm a little frustrated that some of that stuff didn't you know, bleed through more. No, I mean, I think the fact that you and I met via you heard my voice on a podcast and then we yeah. hung out in a virtual world. And honestly, like, your picture on Facebook is not your face, usually. I mean, I know I've seen pictures of you because I've, like, Facebook stalked you, but, like, this is our first time talking. Yeah, like this no, really, yeah. ever at each other and right. Words are, right yeah. yeah 
but we're still friends, right? You know, I mean, so like you can right. definitely make for the, and I've met people. I've got your holiday, I've got your picture of your yeah. family on the refrigerator. Exactly. Upstairs. So, I mean, I, I do, like, yeah. Virtual friends can be real friends. And like if you're in a community, like there's different podcasting community and Facebook groups and online communities and message boards. And I mean, all of that stuff has been around. And, and I think that the real lesson here is that if you build community, then community is worth fighting for and friendships are valid. And relationships are what relationships are in whatever medium they're created in. It's still a relationship if you put the time and the effort in and you have shared experiences and yada, yada, yada. So I think that that's all good. I just think that gets overshadowed so much in in this. But I, I do think that that is a beautiful sentiment. And I just think that for me, my final thoughts here is that the book was good in terms of a lot of things, but the writing, it was just awful. And I can't, I can't get over the writing and the writing style and the lists of crap. It just, I can't, I can't get over it. I'm sorry. I will never read this book again. I don't know if I'll ever read anything else that he will write ever again. I mean, I might, but the movie was big, dumb fun. I think that it took some elements of the book and made them more accessible for people. It definitely got rid of all the lists. Like I said, it was a visual medium. It just put the car in the race and it didn't like expound for two paragraphs about the car, which was nice. Sure. Um, I think because it works on a couple levels, you know, without having everything explained to you, then it was more Easter egg-esque for people who want to go frame by frame, which I think actually fits with like the idea of it. And I mean, you had a hard time watching this movie. (laughs) I I did not have a hard time watching the movie. We sat down. I think we had some popcorn, maybe cookies. I'm not sure. We we eat cookies a lot here. And we watched the movie in one sitting and then we were done. And Personally, I think this movie is going to be remembered for the CGI stuff and not for the story, which is a little disappointing. But in, at the end of the day, it's a epic, questy, wish-fulfillment, boy, fantasy, teen, nostalgic, CGI, explosion of visual effects movie. And yeah. it was based on a book that was really written in a shitty way. Sounds perfect for you, Kalia. <laughs> There's a ton of things I absolutely love that aren't necessarily that great, you know, like the movie Zero Charisma. I didn't know I was going to bring this up, but like, it's a movie about this guy who's a dungeon master and he's he's a, a belligerent ass and it kind of ends up biting him and it ends on a really dark note, and, but it's about being a role-playing game enthusiast, right? And this, it's, it's taken over his whole life, but I mean, it's not a great movie, but I love it. I love to watch it and I feel like it's very relatable. I couldn't recommend it. I wouldn't. I can't really say that it's better than Saving Private Ryan, but I think I would watch it more than Saving Private Ryan. Like, shouldn't I just want to watch like the best like movies and not watch garbage? No, I don't think so. I think that the best of something is what you enjoy, and we all enjoy different things to different levels. And something can be subjectively highbrow or well put together, and you can just not enjoy it. And then things can be kind of slapped together and goofy as hell and you have a good time or it references something that you know and love or it hits your soft spot. I mean, sentimentality is a thing for a reason. Pop songs are not, you know, high art, but we fucking love them. Right. I feel like what I don't like about the movie is that sentimentality is sort of like weaponized. I feel exploited when I watch it because it's like, hey... Check it. Robocop, if you pay really close attention, you can see Robocop and Sonic the Hedgehog at the same exact time. I like Robocop. That's so cool. 
But I think like, that there's a line between referencing and nostalgia and pandering. Yeah. And I think right. that this book and movie are on the side of pandering. And I personally don't mind being emotionally manipulated as long as I don't see the strings. Right, right. Like, right. Like when the music cues on and you're like, oh my God, it's a sad moment. And right. But if you're not invested, you're like, oh, and of course they're going to cue the music, right? Right. So yeah, like when you see what's going on behind the curtains, which is a reference to a wizard of Oz. <sighs> yeah, nobody likes that. It, I feel condescended to. And I think that's one of the things is that I think the people that really don't like this movie or book are feel condescended to. I think that's the biggest like crime that the, these movies and books have. Yep. Agreed. Well, thank you yep. very much, Keith. Real quick, was it worth your time? Yes or no? Um, was the book worth your time? Yeah. Okay. I mean, mm -hmm. okay, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Was the movie worth your time? No. <laughs> okay. And I am going to take the opposite. I'm going to say the book was not worth my time. And the movie was because it was short. Oh, it's two hours and 20 minutes. What are you talking about? Compared to living in the world of the book, it took me more than two hours and 20 minutes to read the book. So to me, the movie was faster. And also I got to do it with my husband and we got to make jokes about it and stuff the right. whole time. So that in and of itself. Okay, okay. But I'm sure that we will. We will have more discussion about this, especially on the Facebook after we have posted the, the episode. So Keith, um, do you have social media handles or where people could find you? Do you want to put that out or not? It's okay if you don't. It's up to you. I'm Keith R. Lau on Facebook. There's a few Keith Lau's, but I'm I'm the one that R. Lau. I'll I'll link to you when I post the episode, and I'm sure people will be able to write and have responses, and that'll be pretty cool. And thank you so much for joining us. And once again, um, because it's not monetized, you get all the same content <laughs> if you support on Patreon or not. Although at some point. I would really like to do some special stuff for the patrons. We shall see about that. But yes, $1 or $5 a month, it helps me keep affording to rent the movies because I did rent this movie and buy the books, etc. That is about it. Thank you so much for joining us on Pages and Popcorn Podcast.